have you been talking about housing and things, Bernard? You usually no, no, I started off talking about, of course, our favourite subject, the elimination strategy and what New Zealand is going to do to open mm -hmm. the rest of the world. Because the debate really heated up this week with yeah. Chris Hipkins come out in Parliament. <laughs> this is a really interesting one. The press gallery, and I'm a member of the press gallery in Parliament, um, has over time stopped watching actual Parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it doesn't help that we're in lockdown and we're not allowed in the, in the gallery, but the TV always shows Parliament running. There is obviously the question time where everyone, you know, sees it as a set piece, as a, you know, clash of the titans. Yep. Thing. We all watch the question time. But actually, there's other parts of Parliament where there are quite interesting and useful mm -hmm. exchanges. And what we've seen in the last year, um, since Trevor Mallard decided to try and find some other more productive um, way to have an exchange between people in Parliament was he started up these essentially a general debate session where um, you can focus on a particular topic and you can mm -hmm. have the opposition spokesperson have a long exchange with the minister involved. And so what we saw on Tuesday night was this really interesting thing immediately after the general debate where uh, Chris Hipkins stood up and then he was asked some reasonably sensible and not too outrageous questions mm -hmm. by uh, the opposition or the National Party's spokesman, Chris Bishop, and then also yep. by David Seymour, in which Chris Hipkins then proceeded over about 10 minutes to basically think aloud about the elimination strategy and what happened mm -hmm. next year and whether or not we can increase the size of MIQ and the risks of people coming in from the rest of the world. And reading between the lines and listening to what he was saying, and I think he was being quite candid, essentially we are in a bind. Yeah, uh, I described yeah, yeah. it this week as a cage of our own making, and a um, yes, with a rather with a rather twisted budgie metaphor. I thought uh, yeah, the budgies yeah. didn't go yeah. down well, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, Bernard, you were very, compared to that earlier one, which you got a lot of um, attack for being mean to Jacinda and, and Chris Hipkins and the New Zealand strategy, it was a very measured piece to say this fortress isn't going to go any time anyway, away very soon, but also it has to come down at some point, and that's the fortress is not 100% defensible. I thought that's right. very reasonable. And, um, yeah, and when you talk to people in government, the senior circles of the bureaucracy and the ministers when the microphone's off they agree that we have to open mm. up at some time it's politically economically morally indefensible to be cut off from the world in this way for any longer than a few mm. months but we have built this amazing success really in quashing um, COVID three times and we're now into the this really is the the doozy if we can quash COVID Delta, we will have done something that no one else has done. Dozens and dozens of cases a day and somehow managed to get, keep it out is amazing. So what's happened is, of course, the whole public, the voting public, have become committed to this thing. Addicted is too strong a word. They do see the pride in it. And, and so they should, in a sense, because they've all been they've all been part of it, even if we are sick of the team of five million thing. But the as you say the exit strategy is very difficult and it is going to mean not walking into middlemore when and being able to walk into middlemore when you're covid positive and we're also going to have a, a rate of vaccination that is yeah this is the thing and i think it's starting to dawn on everyone now particularly if you look at that lancet study which i've made a point of um, connecting to in pretty much every piece of the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. This was a study that sh should have gotten a lot more attention at the time. What it effectively said was the modelling with COVID was that if New Zealand got to 90% vaccination, 
and we were having a reasonably open border with 10 incursions mm. per day, we would have almost 6,000 hospitalizations a year. Which we can't cope with. No, this is the problem, let alone the 500 deaths a year, mm. which um, this study suggested. And as we've learned in the last couple of weeks, our hospital system is stretched to the max, mm. just dealing with day-to-day -day stuff. But we're still um, about to spend $450 million on trying to merge it merge all the DHBs. I, I wow. wonder if Andrew Little might reconsider that. This is an interesting thing. Trying to redesign your entire mm. healthcare delivery system in the middle of the biggest health crisis in living memory is um, a tough thing to do. Mm. But the problem is, understandably, um, people are saying that the DHBs who are not joined up, delivered different levels of service. There is a postcode lottery effect in, as to whether as to how, how long you got if you get cancer, how long your waiting lists are for surgeries. Also, real questions about whether the way that DHBs are very hospital-focused is that you end up awful lot Focusing of money on the institutions. <clears throat> exactly, and not dealing with public health care. Mm. Where uh, had some of the protections for public health care, we may not have um, had such drama. Although when you talk about public health care, what you're talking about there is widespread policies on things like yeah. obesity, smoking. Absolutely, ah. absolutely. No, I just so wonder whether I'm just seeing this debate in Auckland around the number of visitors being allowed into Auckland Hospital, still this Middlemore problem. The managerial aspect of some of these places doesn't always seem perfect. And I feel unreasonable saying that because it's a very difficult situation, but they don't always seem to be pulling in the same direction. No, that's right. And it's a function of the reforms that happened through the, the 90s in our healthcare system, which really were designed to start with to splinter up the healthcare system and to sell it off. But of course, the public revolted pretty quickly in the same way that they did in the UK. The NHS or our public healthcare system has an enormous wellspring of support and understanding that publicly funded healthcare systems, when you've got them, are actually cheaper to run, Absolutely. more effective. There's a percentage, and percentage of GDP. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, so just, and, can you sum up where you, so you've done two quite good pieces, very good pieces now, clearly excellent pieces on the kaka about Fortress New Zealand and how long it might go on for and what the consequences are. To sum it up in a couple of sentences, what is, what's the end game, do you think now? Is it we open at 90, 95%? And if so, we're going to need to do something about vaccine hesitancy. I don't think the government knows. And I think the government's trying to keep its options open for as long as it possibly can, because in its heart of hearts, it understands that not even 95% or 96% is high enough to deal with the outbreaks we're going to get once we open up. Mm. And I think the Prime Minister doesn't know how to open up, doesn't know how to do it, is hoping that we have a Hail Mary pass arrive from somewhere else, potentially mm. in the form of a vaccine mm. or a better combination of vaccines, which means that we can um, get away with opening up and not having it wreck our healthcare system. The yeah. trouble is, of course, yeah. um, none of that is viable with the current set of situations, current set of, set of circumstances we have. A, it's clearly gone loose in Australia, and they would be the first place that needs to be connected to if we're going to reconnect to the world. So we yeah. can't connect to Australia really in the next year or two. Secondly, Delta is clearly being transmitted by people who have uh, been vaccinated. And not only that, there are now increasing numbers of breakthrough infections for vaccinated people, as we've seen in Israel, that's going to require third and fourth doses, maybe more. And with those conditions in place and our inability to increase the size of MIQ, 
we're in this horrible position yeah. where we built this cage, we don't know how to open it up. Politically, there is still support to keep it closed. There's a growing grumpiness in a lot of people in business who are now seeing their businesses collapse. We saw a bunch of them in Wellington yesterday and a lot of people overseas. The, yeah. Supposedly it's mm -hmm. six million, there's a million overseas, many of whom want to come back, not to mention the New Zealanders who need to go and go to funerals and auspices and weddings. And as we and mentioned that. though, Bernard, we, and we often do, we're still seeing 38 to 40,000 new cases every day in the UK. We don't want to be in that position. Although they think, That's they right. think, of course, that they've got that they've cut through it. I, I was just while we're on the subject of COVID, Bernard, I was and New Zealand politics. I was really struck today by uh, a very good piece that Joe Moyer from uh, Newsroom wrote about Chris Bishop, where he effectively apologised for having raised questions about uh, the vaccine rollout, and said, <laughs> I, I, "I really regret saying that if I contributed to vaccine hesitancy in any way." And I thought that was a brilliant interview by her, which she's done three or four lately, which have gone beyond the horse race of politics and got inside interesting politicians' heads, including I think Chris Hipkins and Andrew Little. But also, it was a very sharp contrast to that deeply unwise David Seymour thing earlier in the week, where he was mocking, in a sense, the attempt to get Maori and Pacifica people, in this particular case, Maori people. And he made that ridiculous remark that, that the uh, virus doesn't racially discriminate, when, of course, in fact, it does, because health outcomes for those groups are so much worse. So I thought that was a disgraceful thing to do. And I think he should have just instantly apologized, really. It was a bad call, whereas I rather liked yeah, the way this guy, Chris Bishop, had apologized because you just don't see that enough. No, that's right. David Seymour made a bad misjudgment, and unfortunately he doubled down on it once mm. he realised mm. that this tweet had, had came, come across really badly, and that was his mistake, was to double down. Absolutely. It's a good case where he deletes the tweet and says, hey, I should have thought for a bit longer than two and a half seconds before. I also and had a couple of exchanges wrong. with people who, who reminded me that he, was he in fact, has a whakapapa, and, and whakapapa's back to the Napui, apparently, and that was, as though that was an excuse. And, and of course, that immediately made me think that I'd overreacted and that, in fact, what he was doing was trying to share it amongst, the, amongst his tangata whenua, but I don't think that was really correct. I was giving him too no, much credit. No. He saw a button and he pushed it, and mm. he needed to be careful about that because when you start mucking around with confidence about vaccines... Yes, this is exactly what I was so concerned about, yep. Yeah, and because we know from the last week's figures that <clears throat> the vaccination rates, particularly amongst young Māori and young Pacifica, are way lower than the wider population. And as you say, the decision... What? to us the decision to i've just muted everyone but so peter you'll have to unmute yourself the decision to not focus really on young maori and pacifica first and instead use a colorblind yeah um, yeah uh, but, they did, but don't forget they did focus on old people so let's go the full david seymour libertarian so i i i was at a i was at a, an american presidential election thing a few years ago in tampa when that guy Rand Paul was standing as a potential president, presidential candidate. And there were a whole bunch of libertarians in the audience. And when somebody said, you know, gave a hypothetical of a, you know, a 40 year old man without medical insurance injured in a car crash. And they all said, let him die, let him die. If he hasn't. And this is exactly, so let's go, David. We'll, we won't offer preferential access to old people. We'll save on superannuation and we'll don't worry about those pre-existing complaints. But the other thing, Bernard, I get to bring in Monty Python for this because, of course, we've bought Pfizer vaccine from the Spanish. And, and as someone said yesterday, no one expects the Spanish acquisition. <laughs> oh, so many good jokes. 
Yes, no, that was a cracker and good that we've got a quarter of a million, but really actually disappointing in how the government has um, previewed this and been slow on its delivery, came out with a pretty small bunch of uh, vaccines and yeah. said, hang on, we've got some more coming. It's good that the momentum is up, although I think this slight debate about whether or not we've got supplies may have had, a, had an effect on yeah. the numbers coming through, which have dipped off a, lot, a bit in the last... Interestingly, three... a common friend of ours, Bernard, said to me that Jacinda was absolutely determined to get her vaccines from uh, members of the Socialist International and not from other governments like Singapore. She's such a third way type. I can see why <laughs> that she's um, planning to jump off to the UN as soon as she can. I, I don't necessarily believe that myself. No, I don't either. <laughs> I, I think she's done a brilliant job of this, in certainly in terms of coherence. I think there are errors and I'd like to know what they are and I want to but there's a certain generosity of spirit in how we've got to report on some of these things yeah yeah and she knows that it has to be a clear message to New Zealanders right now which is we're going hard and fast for to vaccinate as many people as possible we're not considering we don't have any doubts about the elimination strategy unlike in Australia mm. And if only we can quash it, then we'll get back to normal. Well, and as That's you say, it's the only option they've got, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, but the thing is, and understandably, <laughs> we are watching closely what Chris Hipkins is saying. They know because, you know, they're not just um, planning for today and tomorrow. They have to think about next year and, of course, the election in 2023, that at some point they're going to have to flip the narrative and start talking about how the open future. can yep. we be Absolutely health system we've got and how op how open politically can we do it and get away with it and the at the moment the the thing is though that our success with the elimination has been so great and the contrast with the rest of the world is so great that people are holding on to this thing for dear life yes and as Luke Melpas said in a good column last week, at some point, the Prime Minister is going to have to do a reverse ferret. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. As, as a British... It's a Britishism, uh, yeah. As a British resident and former member of the British Parliamentary Press Gallery, Peter, what is a reverse ferret? It's when the ferret spins around in its little hole and comes back up your trouser leg, really. But of course, if you go to Yorkshire, they do ferret racing down Alcathene tubes. Now, what else are we going to talk about today? I always enjoy your your bulletin on the spinoff, and I'd recommend for all of our listeners that they jump onto the link and sign up to the spinoff's uh, World Weekly Bulletin that Peter puts together every week, um, looking at the major issues in the world. And you've pointed out today in the geopolitical game of hokey cokey that China is on the move in Afghanistan. China, yeah, China, yeah. Yeah, it, it would appear. Now, look, I, I'm not. It, it would appear that China may be, or it's been reported that China is looking at taking over the Bagram Air Base, uh -huh. which would just be the most extraordinary thing, almost symbolically, because Bagram was not just this sort of American center. We, of course, covered the fact that they left in the middle of the night a couple of weeks ago, but it's also where some of the worst atrocities of the of the War on Terror and the ex process of extraordinary rendition were carried out. So were, were China to take over that, uh, and it's suggested that it might, as part of Belt and Road, actually, that the it would be a sort of branch of the Belt and Road program into which Pakistan is deeply committed. And Marco into... Polo go through Afghanistan? I, I don't think he did. I think he went up a bit further north, possibly through the Uyghur territory. In fact, pretty sure he did go through the Uyghur territory. But the, the other thing about Afghanistan, so I did quite a bit on Afghanistan, and The Economist had quite a good editorial this week, of course, and you know, when they announced the 33-man, literally man, lineup. I don't know whether you saw the fabulous picture also of the, the new central bank governor with an AK-47 on his desk. Sure. Yeah, with I think I've known quite a few central bankers who could do with an AK-47 on his desk, but anyway, he's got one. 
<laughs> and, and as The Economist said, the new Taliban is a lot like the old Taliban. There's some very brave people there at the moment, uh, particularly women protesting against various attempts by the Taliban to crack down. I saw some heartbreaking pictures today of the music school in Kabul, have all the instruments having been destroyed. It's a pretty, it's a pretty sad occasion. And of course, one of the things I tried not to do this week, and I guess I might do next week, Bernard, in the, uh, in the review, was deal with 9-11 and the Twin Towers, because that's going to be very well reported. But I, I was struck today reading the reading an, an, an editorial in The Economist this week, and it is just so incredibly sad in a sense that the um, United States pissed away, in my opinion, all of the goodwill that flowed to the United States for having 3,000 people killed in the 9-11 attacks. Russia offered its support, China offered its support, and the United States has just, over time, let all of that goodwill and all of that potential leadership dribble away in Iraq, an unnecessary invasion of Iraq that was had nothing to do with 9-11, but was all to do with un, unfinished business, as Donald Rumsfeld saw it. So I, I just think we should think a lot about that, the, the sort of ineffable sadness, really, of the loss of a moment when the United States had all of the promise and all of the potential goodwill in what very quickly and for a very brief moment became a unipolar world. And, that's, and we've lost that opportunity, I think. Yeah, no, there's a succession of presidents who've just hung on in there. And Biden obviously never looks good when you um, admit defeat and crawl away. And it's awful uh, what's yeah. happened there. But I wonder whether actually in America, because the forever war led to tens of thousands of troops coming home broken and ending up with opioid addictions mm. and all sorts of other issues and uh, right across the spectrum there's a real willingness i think to say this cost us too much we needed to get out of course it was always going to be bad when we got out but we needed to get out mm. yeah no no and that's definitely the way it seems to be playing out in the, in, in the united states and of course it's quite amusing in a, in, a, in a rather sick way to see trump and pompeo attacking biden for the manner of withdrawal when they effectively surrendered Exactly. Um, but one of the other stories that I called out in there, because what I try to do with that review is not just do the sort of super headline stories that are already very well covered, but I, I called out a story about Ai Wei, the famous uh, um, Chinese artist and now exiled in Portugal. And it was a really good example of a complete lack of courage. Credit Suisse, the, the Swiss bank, is uh, closing his foundation's bank accounts, clearly under pressure from China because of the, quote, criminal record of Ai Weiwei. And of course, he doesn't have a criminal record, but he did spend 81 days in detention. And when I, I went to an exhibition of his in, in London a few years ago, where he's done dioramas, just, just fractionally smaller than real life, of the inside and the exterior of his prison cell. And it, it is the most staggering work, because you realise just how it's... Because they're slightly smaller than reality, it's all about sort of compression and tension and claustrophobia. And he's, Ai Wei makes the point in a piece I, I linked to this week from an art publication called Artnet, artnet.com, that he's also seen pressure from China on some of the biggest and best museums in the world, the Centre Pompidou in, uh, in oh, Paris, the V&A in yeah, Tate Modern, and particularly the M Plus Museum in Hong Kong, where they've had to take down, or they, they believe they've had to take down some of his work. So, you know, it, it's just, and you've got this person of immense courage, um, 
who is a, a Chinese intellectual and a Chinese credit in, in a sense to his country, but rejected and now oppressed by the Chinese Communist Party. Well, that's what I'd love Jacinda Ardern to do, is express <laughs> sympathy and solidarity with someone like Ai Weiwei. Mm which of course is not going to happen. And this week we saw again how determined and systematic the Chinese government is about rolling out Xi Jinping's agenda. Yet more private schools shut down and the government's looking to impose or bring about its common prosperity idea. More tech billionaires running for cover. Mm -hmm giving money to charities and it's a fascinating thing to the see. The speed of it is extraordinary yeah. too. The yeah. speed of this crackdown and the depth of it. After all of these years of celebrating the growth of Chinese billionaires and Chinese tech companies like Tencent and Alibaba, the speed with which they're being hauled back is remarkable. That's right. And the, the Deng Xiaoping idea of it doesn't matter the colour of the cat, whoever gets the mouse mm. is, is okay. That is going. It's clear that Xi Jinping is looking to consolidate his grip on power. And it's good that New Zealand has pivoted away from the sort of sequious, always agreeing with China view that we saw up until last year, mm. really. Mm. And, and I think partly in, as a result, not just of the departure of Jiang Yang and Raymond Huo mm. from the parliament with the agreement of both major parties, but also the ongoing cyber attacks that's been the big news one of the big news yeah. in the last week is the cyber attacks on our biggest banks and the post office and uh, a bunch of other well, i think it was the day of that attack in linmore last week that there was the cyber attack on the on the various i forget the name of the company that provides the broadband to stuff and vodafone and others you know that was pretty extraordinary yeah and that is something that I think behind the scenes in Wellington, amongst the GCSB and the mm. SIS, for at least three or four years now, they have seen what's been going on behind the scenes in the hacking community and have been advising the government that this is a full-on attack by organisations clearly connected to the Chinese state and that we need to push back and think about looking to diversify. Although, interestingly, we can't ignore China because uh, China's economy is doing okay. They had some reasonably good import and export numbers over the last week. And for those who like to follow the aluminium price, which I do, the aluminium price hit a new record high this week, in part because the Chinese are cracking down on the use of coal-fired mm -hmm. power that's used to make and aluminium. Steel. Yes, and also because this is separate from China, but tells us again that geopolitics matters for New Zealand. The coup in Guinea, I don't know if you've been following this coup in Guinea. Uh, there has been a coup in Guinea where some military type with sunglasses, they've always got mm. those. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, took over Guinea. And of course, Guinea is the world's second largest producer of books. So the price of aluminium hit record highs. And that's important for us because that means TY Point stays open for much, much longer and we don't get access to that power. That's a roundabout. That's a very way. interesting. That's a very interesting kind of butterfly flaps its wings in Guinea. And we noticed it in TY Point. Sorry. Exactly. What's the segue you're looking for now, Bernard? Um, just to reinforce that geopolitics matters yeah yeah <laughs> in the so real yeah have you done housing before not really so we should probably have a crack at housing well somebody wanted us to a couple of i mean apart from everybody who's listed very kindly but we remember i sent you a thing from twitter today a couple of people said could we talk about remdesivir and the right. various other 
treatments for potential treatments for COVID-19, except for ivermectin. And I guess we could, but I did, I did point out to them that I'm not Susie Wiles. I don't have, you know, pink hair. But I did notice that Joe Rogan, the, the rather noisy blogger who's been promoting ivermectin, also got remdesivir and some of these other treatments for COVID, as of course did, did President Trump. Yeah, so that's the thing about the last 18 months is that the emergency care departments of the world's hospitals have not been standing still. So those initial um, shock deaths inside ICUs where people were overwhelmed by a lack of oxygen, problems with mm. ventilators. Now there is some pretty aggressive treatments that people put in. And what I've seen in New Zealand in particular, we obviously had, had a, one or two deaths from memory yep. in the latest outbreak, but there's been a lot of people in ICU for a long time. Mm. And, in this, and, and overseas, you're seeing one of the reasons that, and this is horrible, but sad, one of the reasons that ICUs in hospitals are overwhelmed at the moment is because a lot of people are not dying because yeah, um, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of the treatments are being given in hospital. The weird thing is, despite the incredible success, I'm just looking at the UK daily deaths, 167 yesterday, 38,000 new cases and 8,500 8, people in hospital. We, we couldn't sustain that. But what we forget, too, is, as you say, the, the ICU people and the hospital people have become so much more effective at treating it that fewer people, they're not. Even that thing of rolling people over, they've learned and so on. And, of course, that then weirdly feeds into the conspiracy narrative that it's no worse than the flu because more people are surviving. And you've got that strange thing in the States where virtually everybody in hospital is amongst the unvaccinated and virtually everywhere else you've got these unfortunate breakthroughs where where we know that a small percentage of vaccinated people will still pass it on or yeah. it themselves. And I think one of the interesting problems we're going to face if we do have outbreaks here that lead to an overwhelming of the hospital system is that, of course, the worst affected will be those who are unvaccinated. And there will be questions about what happens when there's an unvaccinated person who needs ICU and a vaccinated person who needs ICU for another mm -hmm. reason, a car crash or a heart attack or whatever. Mm. And where do you ration resources? And this is one. Of course, the Americans uh, do the rationing by wealth. Here, we don't have that, which is great. But when you have a limited amount of resources, and it's not now, unfortunately, it's not about money. It's about people. Even if we wanted to increase our ICUs, we wouldn't have the staff to do it. In part because, and luckily, one of the horrible things about the uh, blockages at the border at the moment is that if we were to open it up, the first thing would happen is that the recruiters from the Australian hospitals would be in here to scoop up our ICU staff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And are. Yeah. Those bloody Australians. There's somebody, A. Tibble, very kindly put in a, a link to a podcast with William Dalrymple, who's a fabulous British Indian author, whose books I recommend, particularly uh, a new one called The Anarchy about the, the rise of the uh, East India Company. But he's has done a very good one on, on Afghanistan. And if you look in that MailChimp link that I've just sent, which is my spin-off report, Ian Bremer from Eurasia, the Eurasia Group has got a very good podcast with Preet Bharara, who's my favorite American podcaster, really about uh, trying to have a sort of fair conversation about Afghanistan, which for Preet means not attacking Biden necessarily. But, <laughs> um, but should we should we shall we do one other story before before Bolsonaro. we look at the questions? Oh I Bolsonaro. So, about Bolsonaro. So funny I uh, Glenn Greenwald, who is is a rather vitriolic American journalist who all perpetually seems to have a what Elmore Leonard would have crawled a hair across his bottom in, in one of his books. 
he of course lives in Brazil and he thinks that we're all overstating how big these demonstrations were. But Bolsonaro, the Brazilian strongman, uh, populist president, is stirring up amongst his supporters against the Supreme Court and starting to call in doubt what will be the fairness of the elections next year. Now, uh, Glenn, I noticed today, says it's all being overstated by the liberal media, but Brazil was a military dictatorship until 1980, from 1960s until 1985. And we all know that Bolsonaro is a kind of unprincipled, ruthless populist. He's he, he hasn't served his country particularly well under COVID, and this would be another good distraction. So I think just think Brazil is really worth looking at. And of course, as you will now do, Bernard, as you did so skillfully with Guinea and TY Point, with Vale, the, the Brazilian you know, resources company, any trouble in Brazil is going to have a big knock-on effect, let alone in the legitimizing Bolsonaro's various clearances in the Amazon. So it has a lot of implications. Absolutely. Because, of course, Australia, our largest trading partner, really depends on the Brazilians not getting their shit together and lots of iron ore. I'm pretty sure I still got shares in BHP, so so I'm quite Ah. keen for Vale not to be successful. So I'm I'm voting for the Bolsonaro military takeover. But, Bernard, one of the other stories that happened this week, and it's not quite our skateboarding dog story, but it was the death probably by an overdose of Michael K. Williams, the actor oh, yeah. who was Omar in the, in the Wire, which some people say is perhaps the finest piece of television ever made. And I, I've been really struck by it because Omar is one of the, it's, it's always hard with actors, how wonderful they are and how they inhabit a character that sometimes as a normal human, you stop seeing the actor and you see the character. You can only see the character. And a friend of mine actually has just written a piece for, the, for an obituary about, about Williams and the FT. And he describes about The Wire, I think, I think if, to, he says, quotes, to say there were no good or bad characters in The Wire would be an oversimplification. There were some fi- clearly very bad people, but it never became a morality play. Instead, it provided the narrative pleasures of a 19th century novel, complex plotting, rich characterization and a tone that modulated between tragedy and comedy, the mundane and the dramatic. Now, Omar Little, the character was that, that William K., uh, Michael K. Williams became best known for, uh, and I guess I am characterising him by that character, was, of course, a gay shotgun-toting crook or a, the kind of criminal who takes money away from other criminals. And his quotes from that film or the, the, are, are worthy of Shakespeare, quotes... You come at the king, you better, you best not miss. <laughs> All right, over to you, Bernard. Okay, yeah. No, uh, David Simon is one of those heroes of our cultural life. I think The Wire is one of those amazing American TV series that redefines what a piece of culture is. Yeah, uh, I got told off one day when I was speaking at a conference about journalism and I said that I thought The Wire was one of the best expositions of contemporary journalism and a rather drunk BBC person at the end yelled at me and said but it's drama not news and I thought I think journalism can sometimes take many forms and of course David Simon was a very good journalist at the Baltimore Sun at that's right Philadelphia essentially the wire is about inner city Philadelphia and it is um about the the corruption and the racism and the it's it's about Baltimore yeah, sorry, Baltimore. You said Philadelphia. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. That's but so Alex Jaroski is saying something I don't entirely agree with, but good on him, that Bolsonaro is in fact in favour of free speech. I'm not absolutely sure, certain I agree with that. But anyway, do, do you want to deal with some... And, and yes, I do know Glenn Greenwald has won a Pulitzer Prize and I, I respect the uh, work that he won the Pulitzer Prize for, which was essentially the Snowden stuff. It doesn't mean that he's a very nice person. 
And Peter knows of which he is, speaks because <laughs> at one point, were you managing him? No, fortunately, I don't know. He is unmanageable and I, I haven't managed <laughs> him, but I, I, I have been attacked by him. But he is, he's an always on complainer and often extremely accurate, but it's hard to take, Ex a bit exhausting. It takes all sorts. Yeah. And yes, that is around the world. Did we want to jump into the housing story? Because there's always a housing story I can Oh, jump. yeah. Sorry. Yes. On our Twitter, Steve Voisey wanted us to talk about this idea that uh, young people should not buy new builds. And of course, there was a quite a good story on uh, Morning Report this week about the problem with some of these when you tr transform your KiwiSaver into a mortgage, but with delays and things, the costs are going up and the thresholds are being lost. Yeah, this is a really important story that plays into our, in theory, solution to the housing crisis, which is to increase the supply of houses and the funding issue that we have. Now, ideally, the banks should be lending the extra $30 billion a year that they are at the moment into new builds alone, mm. not necessarily pumping up the existing prices. But the banks are very reluctant or have been in the last 20 years or so to lend to those people buying off the plan. Mm. And that's because um, we've had various crises. Firstly, there was a leaky building for houses built in the late 90s, early 2000s, which meant a whole bunch of people bought an apartment or a townhouse, particularly in Auckland, but not just in Auckland. There's a bunch of them in Wellington and Christchurch as well, where suddenly the asset they thought was worth half a million dollars is worth nothing because you have to rebuild it. And there's a bunch of buildings around Wellington, let alone uh, Auckland, that had to be either demolished or completely rebuilt, really. And the banks had to deal with the, the fallout. And also, particularly the cheaper ones, the banks have seen a lot of uh, rental property investors try to jump in there. Mm -hmm. And that has uh, certainly made the banks nervous about funding these buildings. Now, the problem is, of course, to really get the volume going through, you need the banks to effectively power it by lending to first home buyers because they're often the ones who want to get into these smaller properties who are exhausted with auctions where they always lose and tenders in Wellington where they always lose mm. and they just want a fixed price that they know that yeah. they can afford and the bank will lend them money and on we go and there's hope for the future the problem is if it's not a fixed price and as you point out Phil Pennington who is an excellent reporter at RNZ has found mm -hmm. out that the master builders are saying to builders not to guarantee fixed prices because of the increase in building materials costs. A lot of the builders are making sure that if there is an escalation, particularly if there's a big delay, you remember if we have a month off mm. lockdown or there's some delay in consenting or whatever the problem is, there's the plastic. So do you think there just has to be a little bit of flexibility built into these things somehow? There's never flexibility when somebody draws a line. Does it just have to be turned into some kind of plus or minus X percent to deal with this kind of crisis? Yeah, yeah. well, crunch. ideally, you just don't want these building materials prices to keep rising at this rate mm. because it creates such uncertainty and such fear about if it takes two years to get a house built after you've bought off the plan, what are you going to end up with at the end? Yeah, but some of this turbulence is going to go on. Oh, absolutely. You know, it'll be ups and downs. And as this person, Claude, says here, you know, do, do, it also goes to things like the supply chain. So we, he, Claude's keen that we introduce, reintroduce the New Zealand Steamship Company and <laughs> well, we'll, have the, we'll get the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is something that the government has actually briefly looked at, particularly when we saw real issues earlier this year with a lot of the shipping lines of just flicking New Zealand off their schedules because it's too small mm -hmm. for them, particularly yeah. these new big ships where they really only want to go to one place, load up, 
with enough stuff and leave. Mm. They don't want to be stopping off at Auckland and Tauranga and then ending up. Well, in they also they also don't want to be sitting for three or four days off Rangatoto waiting for Auckland's automated power port system to work. Nice place right? to wait, actually. Yeah. Uh, but yes, exactly that. Um, and what's actually needed is not so much the steamship with a, a big old New Zealand container ship, because there'll be a bunch of these smaller container ships come onto the market soon, because the big firms, the Mersks and the like, mm. are building a whole bunch of new mega container ships, which are actually too big for most of our ports. In mm. fact, just about all of them. And But that's not what we need. What we actually need is a lot more coastal shipping, so that you can see uh, containers in the likes of Timaru and Nelson. And God, this sounds, yeah. like, it sounds like we're going to become like the Pacific and have little lighters moving containers in and off. Yeah, you know, this is a, that's a very late nineteenth-century view of the world, Bernard. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> and, and coastal shipping. Interestingly, the the national long-term plan for transport announced on Monday, which is uh, heaven for transport funding geeks mm. who care about climate change and all that stuff. Thirty million dollars was put in there for coastal shipping strategy, without any specific where does that money mm. go. Mm. And it wouldn't surprise me if the government actually step in and start to create a um, coastal shipping operation, which solves some of these problems of pulling together enough containers in one place to then go off to the rest of the world. Interesting. So, but how do we, I, I was really struck by the, dare I call it, whining, including from some journalists about that, that transport policy. When I think I've told you, I, I took Highway 1 down to Wellington recently, and it was in places like Martin and Thai Happy. It's, you're it's, such a petrol here. It's, it hasn't changed <laughs> since I was a kid. It's you know, two lanes. Surely, yeah. we, surely we need a dual carriageway, virtually a motorway, all the way between Auckland <laughs> and Wellington, particularly across the desert road. Unbelievable how dangerous it is and how much stuff in New Zealand gets moved by truck-based logistics. It's yeah. not going to change. So yeah. more than 90 know, we may need at least one decent road. I mean, we don't need them in the South Island. But we we could just shut the South Island. Um, That's everything just trolling. Fine, but... You're trolling our South Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, deliberately. Yeah, no. It's once we get you the Tesla, Peter, then we can start to shut down the roads. No, but interestingly, in that national long-term plan, twice as much is being spent on building new state highways than Good. is spent on tra public transport, which I'm sure you use the odd bus. Every I, I use buses all the time. I think public transport's incredibly important, even cycling. But I'm glad that stupid bridge has been dropped off. But but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, four lanes, Nelson to Dunedin, says Claude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I guarantee whenever I go to Lake Rotuiti in the South Island and I drive along there, you, you can have about 10 minutes without another car coming your way. And then it'll be a Morris Minor or a uh, Vanguard. You know. Ah, yes. The Morris, you've got to watch out for the Morris Miners. Yeah, exactly. Bought, I used to have one. I paid $1,000 for a Morris Miner when I was 19, and it was the worst car, right? No, it's <laughs> yeah. a wonderful We were talking about housing at some point, about, oh, yes, we segued from the whole issue of building materials into a discussion about Morris Miners. Building materials and whether the banks are lending to houses off the plan, and how do we solve this problem? of reducing some of the risk and the fear for first home buyers and for banks. I think ultimately uh, the government will need to step in with an insurance scheme of some sort and ultimately some sort of guarantee in that mm -hmm. the government will guarantee that it always will buy a property off someone and will ensure that the any doubt in the minds of developers and bankers is removed. Now, of course, if there's anyone from Treasury who've dialed into this one, they will have been trying to leap down the Zoom to throttle me mm -hmm. for this. 
But essentially, the only way we solve the housing crisis in the long run is to swamp the market with new supply. And the best way to do that, because the private sector, of course, understands that if you were to swamp the market with new supply, then house prices would fall. And the last thing you want is that. So what you do is you immediately turn off the tap as soon as prices yeah. start to fall. Yeah. When what you need is a government to essentially change expectations in the market by deliberately swamping it with new supply. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way to go. And at the moment, there is a risk that that new supply tap gets turned off in part because of the shock with building materials prices. And it was interesting to see the government decide this week to allow Fletcher Building and yeah. building materials suppliers to operate during level four in Auckland to steep, keep pumping out the keep bank. the jib board, keep the jib board and, and the and the bats going. Somebody here is asking Leandro's asking us a question about what a ghost what about ghost houses? Uh, yeah. ghost houses places that are would tell us what they are and tell us about that. So the idea is that there is a whole bunch of houses in Auckland and elsewhere that are empty, that have been bought by either rental property investors or overseas owners, and that it's a crime because there's an empty house that should really be occupied by someone. Mm. If only we had a ghost house tax, like I think they've got in the UK, yeah. then we would force people to rent these things out. Oh, these socialist ideas that keep uh, coming out of your mouth every Friday. It's incredible. Right. <laughs> tax but, the rich, eat the rich. Yeah, but, and our data isn't fantastic, I have to say, but the census shows that the number of houses in that category is relatively low in yeah. all in particular. And trying and to find them would be quite difficult. Difficult. So why yeah. don't we just have why don't we just have a squatting law and I can pop across the road and and take over a, a villa in Hearn Bay that would be quite nice. Actually, that's a really interesting mm. idea. That's a column and a half. Introduce a squatting law and see mm -hmm. what happens. And not just for houses, but for land, because there are big chunks of of the big cities where we've seen empty spots of land for years and years. Land Bank is able to sit there and wait and wait. It would be quite nice to get some pressure on those guys. Mm. Um, that may happen at, at, at one day. Yeah, the, the guts of it is we don't actually have a ghost houses problem according to the data that we have. Oh, uh, yeah, here's another socialist. Yeah, take over the golf courses and build houses. Ah, on. Yes. I noticed, yeah, I've quite a few people have been pitching that. There's poor golfers. Poor golfers. Yeah. <laughs> Poor golfers. You're not a golfer, Peter. That's good. And you're absolutely right. In Auckland, there is a whole bunch of golf courses that should be turned into housing. And all of them are owned by the council, by the way. And unfortunately, one of the most recent examples was the one out at Pakaranga, I think it was, owned by the council, the most prestigious private golf club in the country, mm -hmm. rezoned for residential. And effectively, they had to make sure that they uh, changed the zoning back to golf clubs. And the court agreed with them, which is freaking outrageous. And just goes to show that it's a real, it's real trench warfare in the Resource Management Act world to ensure that house houses get built, particularly medium density houses. And a good example of that was news out this week from Auckland, where the new developments around Drury which you might see if mm, I've happens, seen them. Yeah. Happens to get when out. I'm dry, when I'm trying to barrel down the highway one until I come to a screeching halt at the desert road. Yeah. yeah that, those developments, Auckland Council has just increased the development contributions per section from 
80,000, sorry, no, from $14,000 to $80,000. You mean the contribution that they must make to improving land around them, that kind of thing? Is that what it, yeah, so what happens is that you see a developer who wants to set up a whole bunch of new houses in a particular section, and the council says, well, if you do that, you're going to have to pay us a certain amount per section to make sure that we can put the pipes and the roads in and we can set up the power and that sort of thing. And what has actually happened in the past is that the cost of this new infrastructure development has been lumped on mm. to the marginal supply being added into the market. And because of the way the market operates, that marginal price is what sets the price for the mm -hmm. rest of the market. And the big change in the last 30 years is that those subsidies from broad taxpayers to new home buyers in the form of subsidizing the infrastructure underneath those new homes has gone away. Mm -hmm. So in the past, we used to have the Ministry of Works and all sorts of other... Those products. are the days. Oh, <laughs> Uncle Mo, they used to call yeah. them. Anyway, so they would you know, pay for the pipes and the roads and the developers didn't have to pay anything. They would go in there, they'd build a house, they'd sell it. And of course, at the moment, those extra costs get lumped onto the first home buyer and effectively get smeared across the entire market and increase the value of all houses. It's a perfect wheeze for existing homeowners. And uh, again, um, put in place by Treasury in a bizarre idea that somehow the taxpayer at large shouldn't subsidize new infrastructure for new generations because dot because and it's been one of the biggest intergenerational crimes uh, that's happened in New Zealand and yeah. mostly and that's the end of the party political broadcast from Bernard oh. Hickey's flat yeah unelectable and unemployable yeah. so no no one's saying this in, in public yeah. well it's interesting there's a bit of a, a new nostalgia coming up for a ministry of works mm. Um, mm. that i think will come back go, go and have a look at some of these questions on the left sue is sam perkins is saying with low population growth and possibly contraction and our gilded cage discussion doesn't the housing situation sort itself out i'm not absolutely sure of that because you've got quantitative easing, raising asset prices, you've got a lot of people coming back from overseas. And yes, I would like to have Oliver home as well as my other home. Thank you. Yes, oh, sorry, that's not what you meant. A really great question from Sam, because at the moment, of course, we're not having the migration led mm. population growth that we all expected. The problem is over the last 20 years, we have systematically underbuilt mm. for the population growth we've had. And we've also underbuilt to replace um, decaying and unhealthy housing that we should have replaced. So we still have this enormous task ahead of us to pump in new supply. The other thing that's happening over the last 20 or 30 years is that the average size of households has dropped. Mm. So even as you get more people in, you have to build 1.5 times more houses than the people you get. Yeah, which is a very, that's the Swedish model. Was it, what did we see during the COVID thing? Something like 47% of Swedes live alone. It was a very interesting, and it's one of the factors in the way COVID has spread or not spread in, really? in Sweden is the extraordinarily high number of um, people living alone and in, and in tiny units. One thing about all that, Bernard, I was really struck the other day by a comment from somebody that we talk about luxury housing in New Zealand, when in fact, what we really mean is just a warm house with possibly double glazing and not a drafty old dungeon like we're used to living in. Yeah, and that's it. As someone who lived in London, I was shocked when I went into this small, relatively <laughs> modest house. And in the middle of winter, when there was snow outside, it was warm. And I'm thinking, oh, what's wrong with this house? What have we done? But of course, that's the, one of the, the great achievements unspoken about not just Britain, but continental Europe mm -hmm. through the 50s, 60s, 70s, is that they went through a process of 
re-engineering and rebuilding and renovating their housing stock to make mm. it warm and dry. And in part because they discovered gas and wanted to use it to um, warm people's homes, which is great. But in New Zealand, when we should have been doing that, particularly through the 80s, 90s and 2000s, the government decided that it wasn't in the business of subsidising new homes or ensuring that people lived in healthy homes, even though if they'd done a modicum of analysis, they'd work, they would work out that every dollar you spend making a house warm and dry is repaid multiple times over by the number of visits to emergency rooms and mm. not hospital from kids who end up there every winter. Bernard, our lovely friend Jonathan Suckling, who as we know I think um, has put down the deposit on his house, possibly even gone in yet, is asking whether we can forecast that his house will double and, and I, I would say we just about can, but <laughs> neither of us are qualified to give any advice on any subject a, about anything. It is a Friday afternoon, Jonathan, and cheers for the doubling yeah. of house prices that are quite yeah. likely in the next year. Sorry, not the next year, the next 10 years or so. And why do I say that? In the last 30 years or so, New Zealanders have learnt how the housing market and our political system and the Reserve Bank have operated. In many ways, a collective wisdom of the masses, which is uh, brighter than all the the economists and the politicians have told us that the housing market's overvalued. They understand that this is a too big to fail market, that the government and the Reserve Bank now cannot crash. Mm. Because if they did, they'd get unelected and the Reserve Bank would lose its one remaining monetary policy tool that's effective. And, and with the real problems that we're seeing with supply for housing, we've seen all the building materials issues, we've heard the debates about whether banks can fund houses being bought off the plan. I think we, we see a restriction in supply of housing going into the market. You're already seeing it from some of the bank economists talk, talking about worries about too much supply going in and we need to start drying this up. Mm. So the forces in favour of reducing supply going into the market will build. Secondly, with the Prime Minister's current stance, not to bring in a wealth tax and the government's very sort of transparent refusal to actually target any sort of meaningful yeah. house price affordability. Those people who are betting on 6-7% house price inflation per year have been much more accurate than any of the... Yeah, yeah. Bank I, I just noticed that somebody there called Warwick Francis, who was a right-thinking person who advocates not taxing the rich. Which, just thank God, there's thank God we're not all tax advocates like you, Ben. That's an interesting one, Warwick. And I would argue that the rich, mostly rich, because of things that they are not responsible for. A, they inherited wealth often. B, they um, gained from massive drops in interest rates and inflation, which they really had nothing to do with and can't claim responsibility for. C, they also can't claim credit for the Resource Management Act and the way that councils have restricted supply into the market. They can claim credit for applying political pressure to avoid wealth taxes. Mm -hmm. That's fair Definitely. enough. And the, the thing I would argue against that in saying that we actually need, in my view, a very low rate broad land tax, my bet is 0.3%, to fund infrastructure for um, new housing and climate change infrastructure, public transport in particular, is that unless you reduce this inequality and make sure that the masses are not going to revolt, they will revolt. 
Now, it's not happening at the moment because a bunch of people aren't, aren't voting and because in New Zealand we think everyone's very sensible and doesn't revolt. But at some point they will revolt. And the last thing you want is a revolt of the masses. Mm -hmm. And uh, interesting, I did a, a podcast this week for the spinoff about the failure of capitalism over the last 30 years to essentially solve capitalism's underlying problem, is, which is that it eats itself and it eventually piles up wealth into um, piles of cash in the corner. Mm -hmm. And eventually there's a, a war or a revolution or something that um, destroys everything and we start again. I spoke to a guy called Luigi Zingales, who's a professor at um, University of Chicago, who pointed out that over the sweep of history, the only time we've seen inequality reduce in any significant way is through world wars, which destroy a lot of wealth. That's one way to remove inequality. And secondly, plagues. So when you look at the history of the world, um, the last time we saw a significant reduction in inequality was after the Black Death of the late 1300s. And also, of course, immediately in the wake of the First World War and the Spanish flu. And one of the great things about the last century was that in the uh, 40s, 50s and 60s, you saw FDR and all those politicians in Western Europe decide for their own reasons, mostly to try and stop the Russians from taking over, that they needed to moderate the excesses of capitalism to avoid an implosion and effectively communists taking over. What we saw with the end of the Cold War is that the capitalists were unleashed. And what we're seeing now is the end result. Robert, I should, oh, but, but I should apologize to Warwick Francis, who was worried that I both misquoted him and didn't give him an opportunity. Do you want to invite anybody to come in and talk, Bernard? Yes, yes. Warwick, to be fair, let's see if I can find you here on the system if you want to unmute yourself well, I was feeling that I was being a hack and misquoting him about the taxing the rich idea ah sorry I may have missed that where are we you're welcome to jump in anyone I think has the ability to unmute themselves and jump in if they'd like I, I don't have the full webinar add-on which allows me to take pure Xi Jinping I think we're oh yes the those are the main questions I think we'll take one more question, I think. Yes, we have heard of the Holmador in Ukraine. There's some fabulous... I haven't. It's the, it's the Stalin-derived famine, the Ukrainian famine, which some of the descriptions in Tim Schneider's books and Applebaum's books of the cannibalism in Ukraine in the 1930s is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. No, I'm obviously not a fan of communism, and I'm not suggesting that we should do that instead. And capitalism, you know, is the worst form of organising society, except for all the others. Yeah. Um, I'd just be quite nice to moderate it and try and avoid these sort of wild swings to inequality, which, which in the yeah. end, self-destructive and... Oh, there's Warwick. Sorry. Oh, let, me, yeah. let me just unmute you, Warwick. I don't think I can, actually. Have it. Oh, he isn't. Warwick, you can, you're most welcome to talk. I think I can find him here. Yeah, yeah well, Warwick is just two, one along from Beverly Short, which is two along from you, Bernard, and now. I don't think I can. I don't have the power. To, I don't have the power to unmute Warwick. I'm looking for him. Warwick is unmuted, but not speaking. Ah, there you go. I can hear you now, Warwick. Go no, no, that's our lovely friend Jonathan in his amazing new $2 million house. And I think we might have um, misrepresented them here as well. We can't, I'm sorry, we haven't found a way to do that work. One day we'll get much better at this and we're making this up as we go along. We hope you enjoy. Actually, Pat Clark just said to me, Anne Applebaum's a very interesting, and she absolutely is. So there's a fantastic piece, just to digress slightly since you bring it up, Pat, 
in the Atlantic magazine, which I, I never really used to look at, but does have now some of the greatest writers in the world that I like, like Anne Applebaum, uh, a guy called George Packer. Anne's got a really remarkable story this week about what we might call woke cancel culture. But she is very disciplined about not using the word woke and not calling it cancel culture. But she, oh, just like newsroom, people cannot answer back. Yes, you can, Warwick, you just did. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, and did a really good piece this week in The Atlantic about academics, journalists, and others who are can't redeem themselves, it seems, from either sexist remarks they might make or accidental inclusion in Me Too type disputes. And one of the ones she, she mentions, which I, I have immense sympathy for, was the sacking of the editor of the New York Review of Books, Ian Baruma, who was a fabulous author. And he made the mistake of carrying a sort of self, a descriptive piece by somebody not him, but somebody who had been accused of some Me Too offences. And I just, the, I'm very interested in this idea of what it takes to redeem oneself once you've made a screw up. And I, that's a little bit why I mentioned that Chris Bishop thing today, because I find it very gratifying that he apologised for that. Yeah. And, and Chris, I, Chris is one of the more thoughtful hmm. uh, members of the caucus, one of the more successful and effective opposition politicians, and frankly is in a much better position in the long run to win over the centre ground that Judith Collins is not, but he has been essentially sent to Coventry yeah. by his leader. And it's unfortunate, and it, it is good to see Chris do that. He is quite an engaging character who I think has a future as a potential National Party leader. We'll see how long that, that lasts. Hey, we've probably done our hours worth, um, Peter. Yeah, I'm, slightly I'm, over. Yeah, I need extra pay this week. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. I need to buy you that. Yeah, and I'm please forgive me, anybody who's out there, if you feel I was being too much of a smarty pants, or just trying oh, to no, no, no. just trying to leaven things up on a on a Friday afternoon yeah, and yeah. Uh, oh, burn it up a tiny awful. bit. This is an awful lot of fun being wound up and having a fun chat about the week. Really appreciate everyone coming along. We had more than fifty participants at various points. Plus, we'll be doing better than Peter Williams soon, won't we? <laughs> That's right. We should ask for his job. Well, actually, we should we should we invite Peter Williams, that guy, Pat Plunkett, Pat Plunkett's son, Sean Plunkett, to come on, and we'll just have a bit. And hear the can, outrage coming down. We can invite them to our podcasting same. network. Yes. Yeah. yeah not not so much screaming as not so much streaming as screaming. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, Peter, wonderful to see you. Thank you very much. Uh, cheers to everyone. I hope Thank you very all, much. I hope you all enjoyed our hoon around the event. Yeah, the other thing Bernard and I discussed the other day was that we may not be able to call this over the horizon anymore because that's what uh, Biden's plan is for using uh, drones and things to take on the uh, Taliban. And, and I think we know that's not going to work. Uh, we don't want to compare ourselves to drones blowing up. So that's. Thank that's, you very much, everybody. Talk to you soon. Okay, Cheers.